0: We are back with Professor Alexandra Philandra. She is at the University of Illinois, Chicago, and she's out with a new book, Race, Rights, and Rifles, The Origins of the NRA and America's Gun Culture. Welcome, Professor Philandra, and thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I am always intrigued by authors like yourself and Professor Carol Anderson who take on the Second Amendment and the gun rights advocates because they are so... I'll use the word arrogant and and self-assured and and, and confident that the second amendment gives them this unfettered right uh, to have access to guns, even assault rifles. And we see some of that attitude being displayed or demonstrated by or manifested, I guess, by our own U.S. Supreme Court in recent decisions by that conservative court. So Thank you for you know, challenging some of those notions. I'll, I'll just start by asking you what was your impetus uh, for writing race rights and rifles?
1: My thank you very much for having me Ariva. Uh, it's great to be here. Um, my uh, impetus for writing this book was understanding the origins of this political, Version of gun culture. There are many many gun cultures in America. There's a hunting culture, uh, there's sporting cultures, people who like to uh to do who uh gun sports, uh, but there's also this very strong political gun culture that describes uh democracy as coming from the barrel of a gun. Uh literally, they say that. Elites, political elites can become so corrupt and tyrannical that unless the people have firearms to resist them, they have the power to resist them through through violence, through force, uh, we can't count on the right to vote. Uh, As the NRA calls it, uh, guns should be our first freedom because unless you literally have a gun to point at elected officials, you can't rely on the right to vote because it's uh, it's fleeting they can take away your right to vote unless you have firearms unless you have the power to threaten your elected officials and this ideology seems inconsistent with the way we understand today and practice democracy we don't we think of voting and of protesting and petitioning the government as the means of expressing democracy, we don't think of going to you know a politician's office with a gun and say do things for me uh, or basically threaten you or feel that you have to be threatened. So I wanted to understand where do these ideas come from. And that's what I was going to ask you: is that this thinking on the part of the NRA?
0: Is this at the origins of this organization? Is this a part of kind of their you know founding
1: mission, their their origin story? Well, actually, it goes way before them, and it's the founding of the American Republic story. It is foundational to um, the building blocks of uh, America, because in the 18th century, when at the time of the American Revolution, um, the ideology that drove uh, the building of the Republic was an ideology called martial republicanism. And what this idea was about was that in order to create good citizens in the sense of citizens who would put the public good ahead of their personal uh, private good, they had to be uh, people who were valorous. They had to be people Mm -hmm. who were willing to put their lives on the line for the country. They had to train at arms but not in the private sense, in the military sense. So Mm. the citizens had to be good soldiers and they had to be uh, training, willing to train at arms uh, in order to be virtuous. And virtue was what was required to be able to recognize the public good and what was corrupt, what politicians were doing that was um, not consistent with the public good and then vote in accordance with the public good in the ni- in the 18th century um, militaries were formed in terms of individual soldiers uh, we didn't have the technology of the late 19th or the 20th century or the 21st right. century so basically um, the idea of uh, firearms was, in the sense of building the militias of the states. And it was one of the first laws that the US uh, passed after the ratification of the constitution was the Uniform Militia Act of of 1792, which is often referenced in, rela- in relation to these um, decisions. And what this uh, act says is that every white man in uh, of military age, 18 to, I think, 45 at the time, is required to uh, serve in the militia. So there was conscription, so, like it is in Europe in many countries today or in earlier times, all men had to be part of the state militia. And they had to buy their firearms and all the related um Accoutrements that were necessary for serving in the military, their uniforms, all of these things. And the reason for that was because at that time, the American governments, the states were broke. This was Mm -hmm. not a time where they could actually, they didn't have the defense department that we have today. They didn't have the budgets that they have today. So essentially, they privatized the cost of creating a military on the cheap to the individual citizens. And they also put the requirements that you had to be enrolled in the militia to be able to vote. Several states in the early republic said, "Uh uh-uh, you have to be part of the militia. You have to serve and you have to be ready to die for the country and be virtuous in order to be a part of the militia. And of course, at this time, This applied only to white men because the ideology of white supremacy was laid over this idea of martial republicanism. And that ideology basically said that African-Americans on one hand um, could never be trusted with the public service, with the support supporting militarily the country because they were savages, because Mm. they were um, enslaved and uh, chose basically the dependency of slavery over the death of freedom. They stayed enslaved and that made them incapable of becoming uh, good soldiers and therefore good citizens. And when at that time, Uh, Jefferson was looking at the revolution in Haiti, which was an African, a black revolution uh, where the slaves took over the island and established the first um, black republic in in the world. He was seeing cannibals. He was not seeing um, revolutionaries like the founding fathers had been 15 years earlier. To him, the exact same impetus, the exact same act But from Black people had a completely different meaning. And and when it came to people who uh, rebelled against white authority within the United States as slaves, that was also savagery. It was never interpreted as an effort to become free. And basically, that meant that African Americans were excluded ideologically and practically from military service. And so were women at the same time. So, because- so, so what
0: happens, Professor Philandra, when we see the enactment of, you know, civil rights legislation, uh, you know, the end of slavery, the opening up of the military, the ability for African-Americans to serve in the military. So we see these changes, uh, you know, pretty substantial changes as it relates to How African Americans go in this country from slavery uh, to you know this this period of uh, you know Reconstruction, then Jim Crowism, uh, you know the Civil Rights Movement. Does anything change about the underpinnings this 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 white supremacy that you identify in the 1700s? Are there changes as we're seeing you know a recognition that African Americans are not subhuman? We're not second class citizens. That we are you know.
1: equal uh, to our white counterparts. But that is, that's is—that's not what happens. Because uh, throughout, even though African-Americans have fought in every American war, they have fought up until Vietnam. They were kept always in positions of support. Um, so even in the civil war, you have... Um, this very moving speech by Frederick Douglass, where he says, if you wear the pin of the Union Army on your coat and you have the the, the gun of the Union Army on your shoulder, nobody can deny you your manhood. Nobody can deny you your, your citizenship. Um, but even within the Union Army, they're not put Really into battle, they're put into dig ditches. In the first world war, you see the same experience. You see W.E.B. Du Bois saying we have to close ranks because African Americans have to fight in Europe against authoritarianism, because after that, surely our rights will be recognized as citizens, because if we die for this country we we will it will we will show our equality and it yet again doesn't work like that and the first so the African Americans actually organized independent militias um as of the 1830s with the Civil war coming uh out from uh, of their own pockets in Massachusetts in Ohio, everywhere where there's a an underground railroad. This is basically a a vigilant societies that militarized to help the the escaping slaves, but also because the war is coming, they wanna be prepared to fight. And all of this is done with funds from these very poor, free black communities. And after the civil war, these continue to to exist. And they're very big, symbolic, Effort by the African American community, especially because after the Civil War, you start seeing the evidence of Jim Crow. People are kept away from voting, but this is still a way to reach citizenship because in this ideology of republicanism, military service is one of the two important things, parts of citizenship. So they keep using it to, to prove their manhood, their citizenship. But The American state, the white supremacist American state, takes these units and sends them where? It sends them to the plains to kill Indians. It sends them to Cuba to to create American empire. It sends them to the Philippines. So black soldiers are dying, (coughs) killing other minoritized people in order to try to break into this white supremacist system. That is really not working. And then even in the in World War II, it took Randolph and attempts to basically threats to have a major march on Washington to order the integration of the military. But it wasn't. And I guess no, and I hear what you're saying, and
0: obviously incredible history for all of us to to know and and about the you know the the pervasive nature of white supremacy dating back, as to the 1700s. When we come forward, I want to talk about today's military, in particular, where we have African American men serving at some of the highest levels uh, in the military, very visible. And some of the again the overt changes that have happened with respect to the military. How uh, do we? How do you explain that in the book as it relates to? Uh, Again, this gun culture and the supporting of white supremacy when we come forward. More on KBLA Talk 1580. You're listening
1: to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580.
0: We are back. And in this hour, I'm talking with Professor Alexandra Philandra. She is a professor at the University of Illinois, Chicago, and she's out with a new book. It's called Race, Rights, and Rifles, The Origins of the NRA and America's Gun Culture. This book has been described as an eye-opening examination of the ties between American gun culture and white male supremacy from the American Revolution to today. All right, Professor, we talked a lot about the underpinnings of the gun culture as it relates to uh, white supremacy in the early uh, you know, 1700s, 1800s. Bring us current to today. So today we have... Uh, Black men in particular serving at some of the highest ranks in our military. So give us, uh, you know, uh, an understanding of how we look at those men and their positions and juxtapose it against this white male supremacy, which uh, is kind of the underpinning of much of our gun culture.
1: So. Yes, the military changed radically, especially in the 60s, both because of the demands of the of the Vietnam War, but because, <laughs> primarily because of the civil rights movement. The civil rights movement pushed very hard for racial integration in the military, and they got it in 1948. And over time, African-Americans served in combat positions, which is the real, in quotes, Um, soldier, that's the real thing that soldiers are supposed to do, Um, and uh, also rose in the ranks, especially in the army. Some of the elite forces, like the Marines, tend to still be a lot more white. But as this was happening, there was another actor organized at the social level and bringing in and maintaining um, white, the, this idea of white supremacy, or this idea of martial republicanism mixed in with white supremacy, and that's the NRA. And the NRA typically is thought of as a lobbying group for the gun lobby, but that's actually not what the NRA is or where it comes from. The NRA is an organize, a military organization that was established in, in, 1860, in 1871 after the Civil War by officers of the National Guard who basically believed that the National Guards were so under training in shooting that they were completely ineffective. Uh, there were lots of reports about the quality of soldiery in the Civil War, and before that, Uh, The militia, the state militias, the national guards were, uh, in the 19th century, were uh, famous for being terrible. And these people wanted an organization that would work as a private contractor, essentially, with the, the state and federal governments to train the guards and the draft age population, both in shooting and in instilling this ideology of the good citizen soldier who's ready to fight and protect the country at arms. And they managed to get this amazing deal out of Teddy Roosevelt. Um, this is the time where this ideology is uh, reigning. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt is himself uh a former uh, leader of the National Guards, many members of Congress are members of the National Guard. So, um, these uh, the NRA comes to them with the National Guard and say, "Hey, we want the federal government to gives us to give us money to set up ranges and set up shooting competitions, but also in order to create a large membership, we want a deal where you will give us." guns and ammunition out of the federal depots for free or at discounted prices um, for members of our organization alone. And uh, that's what happens. They get this basically special deal where if you are a member of the NRA, you can go to the federal government and get free ammunition and discounted weapon uh, yeah uh, uh, weapons at discounted prices and they build a large membership and they become responsible for training all these people and it's not just training them in shooting they're indoctrinating them in this ideology and of course this is a federated organization and most of their members are white it's very difficult impact I guess professor you
0: said they're more than a lobbying organization. I get that. But what impact are they having today? Like When we look at the NRA today, we know they've been weakened. We know they've had a lot of
1: financial scandals. but, But where are they today? Their major influence is in having affected how people think about guns and gun ownership. Having brought this culture, this political gun culture that understands gun ownership as a political act as a symbolic um showing of signal of good citizenship and instilling it in a large proportion of the population among white americans today about uh, 40 percent think of uh gun ownership as a sign of good citizenship and Mm -hmm. Also, 56 percent. Does that break
0: down, Professor, uh, along political lines like Republicans, Democrats or just 40 percent of all white Americans?
1: This is 40 percent overall. Yes, conservatives and Republicans are far more overrepresented in, in this. Um, and uh, also, of course, what we see is that people with negative views of outgroups. People who have negative views of black people, people who have negative views of immigrants, also uh, negative views of gender, sexism, tend to express these types of views. And they are far more likely to also own firearms. They're also far more likely to believe, 56% of all whites in 2023 said in the survey that we did that the federal government is so powerful that we need guns to protect ourselves from it. So it is this very um, fearful culture, culture that fears government and thinks of guns as the way to solve political problems. Um, And again, It skews Republican, it skews conservative, but it is a very large proportion of the white population that holds these ideas. And it goes beyond those who strongly identify with the NRA. So those are the core, but this has spread to a lot more people, a lot more families. And if you take along with that, that there are 400 million firearms in uh, civilian hands, give or take. And right now, our best estimates, which are based again on surveys, so we don't have hard data on who has firearms and how many, but we, based on estimates, 77% of all gun owners today are white. Um, mm. That tells you that there is a huge difference. Uh, if you think that about a third of the total population or so has firearms. And of those, 77% are white. And you divide that by 400 million firearms, that's a lot of firearms on average per person. And we know from the surveys that 10 or more percent of people have hundreds of firearms. So there is a very large concentration of firearms in, in the part of the population that is actually shrinking over time because the mm-hmm. white population is now 59% of the overall American population. And yet they represent 77% at least of gun owners. That in itself is worth thinking about and what the implications- Yeah,
0: I, no, it, it, it's definitely worth thinking about. It. when we come forward, I wanna talk about how this, these statistics that you just gave us, how do they impact what we see happening at the Supreme Court level uh, around uh, support for more access to guns? And does it ever, and does it suggest that we're ever going to get to what we all think of, or many of us think of as sensible gun legislation? Stay with us, KBLA Talk 1580. All right, Professor, I'm just trying to make sense of what, this means, in terms of when we think about sensible gun control legislation, we hear a lot about that. Particularly right after there's a mass shooting, and we have so many mass shootings in this country. After there are the standard thoughts and prayers, there's always some conversation about we need uh, sensible gun legislation. But based on what you're saying, is that even you know a realistic possibility in this country?
1: It is incredibly difficult. Because first, this ideology was um, took the stamp of the Supreme Court in 2008 with Heller, where Justice Scalia tells us that the able-bodied men of the nation have the right to organize in militias to fight against tyranny. So the political right to fight tyranny is now an official constitutional right of each individual of us which in itself is incredibly problematic because A, why the able-bodied men? And B, who decides and on what what criteria, what's tyranny? So that's the one thing. Then we have the Bruin decision last year, which basically tied us to the history and tradition uh, interpretation, which basically says that unless there was a law that kind of resembles what we have today, in 1791, or in 1868, when um, the Constitution was amended after the Civil War, uh, during reconstruction, then, and there at least a pattern of three and not in the West, um, then basically those laws are not constitutional. A problem that we have with that is like, well, in 1791 and in 1868, there were no airplanes. So what do you do about guns in planes? Um, There were not modern ways of living like we have today. There were no like national parks or local parks the way we have them today. What do you do about trying to restrict gun ownership in uh, public spaces like that? Um, Also, they had muskets and we have AR-15s. We don't have the same kind of technology anymore. Um, The result of that is that um, the Supreme Court is currently in the middle of the most insane uh, decision that I am sure, as a lawyer, you have more of an expert opinion than I do. It's the Rahimi decision where you have a um, domestic abuser with a long history of violence against both his partners and other people who has uh, basically shot at fast food workers because they were not fast enough. Um, And because domestic abuse was not a crime in 1791 because actually the laws of the time made wives the property of their husbands, then red flag laws that allow states to take away guns from domestic abusers are null and void based on this history and tradition logic of the Bruin decision. Um, My understanding as a lay person, not as a lawyer from the um, discussion at the Supreme Court is that the, 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 the justices are desperately seeking a way to pull back so that at least red flag laws will be found constitutional we don't know how they're going to do that um yeah
0: because you're right they put themselves in quite a bind with that new york gun decision which seemingly opened the door and said unless it was around during the period in which we're talking about the uh, adoption of the second amendment then it's we can't it can't be used to prevent people from having access to guns, so we can see if we go down that slippery slope, that would mean people with mental health issues should have access to guns. There just wouldn't be any limitations, uh, exactly. and all of the laws and all of the efforts on the part of you know certain lawmakers, particularly those Democratic lawmakers in certain states like California, there would be no constitutional support for them restricting gun access.
1: Another really ironic twist to all this, which is also like nonsensical, it exposes the nonsensical uh, construct here, is that if, as the Heller decision says, people have a right to uh, own firearms in order to protect from tyranny, why can't you take firearms into political spaces like the capitol? Um, if the goal is to basically threaten your elected officials so that they stay in their lane, why are those spaces or courthouses or any other? Any federal (laughs) building, yes, or airplanes (laughs) or any place where you might encounter
0: one of those elected officials, you will be quickly wrestled to the ground, arrested uh, and charged with some pretty serious felonies, which is, You know, you're just exposing the hypocrisy, right? It's not irony, it's hypocrisy. Correct. Uh, Go
1: ahead. Exactly. That is the exact, the correct word. It is hypocritical. And it is, um, yeah, and it has put us in a very difficult situation. In the meantime, we have an election next year, and our data suggests that with what the decision last year uh, allowed is public carry. People now are allowed to bring their firearms into the open space. Uh,
0: Except so, those places like federal courthouses. Exactly. <laughs>
1: um, and, but they can bring them, theoretically, into protests. Um, they can bring them, like it happened in Arizona, uh, to, to uh, patrol around the ballot uh, de- deposit box. Um, they can bring them maybe around uh, voting booths or something or come into a voting booth with their guns why not and the question is does that produce chilling effects when you know or you're informed that hey other people may be bringing guns to a protest other people may be bringing guns to the voting booth or to any other political space to a town hall meeting um how likely are you to attend those things? How likely are you to vote? And our data um, that we collected this year um, suggests that there are significant chilling effects. People are chilled from participating in these political activities. Right, when they know people have access to guns are carrying. To exactly.
0: this, Professor, do you see different attitudes? So she gave those statistics about the majority of, of gun ownership being, you know, concentrated with white Americans. What are the attitudes that Black People have around gun ownership? Because we have seen these groups of like African Americans, you know, gun owners. Uh, and we'll see on social media, oftentimes, Black groups with rifles and, you know, stating their rights to bear arms as well. But, but what's overall the general attitude that Black people have around guns and gun legislation?
1: African Americans is the group that has the highest rate of support for gun control because for many reasons. Um, their communities are the ones that are most affected by gun crime and by gangs that are armed with uh, stolen guns, with illegal guns. Uh, their kids are the ones that are more likely to die on the street because of, of gang fights. Uh, uh, there is also um, high levels of domestic abuse within the African-American community and Uh, That also uh, uh, affects support for for gun control. Um, They're also worried about uh, having a gun uh, on their person, given the police uh, response to that. Uh, We have seen on several occasions where uh, police have shot at African-American people, because they had um, a firearm on them. The Castillo case in Minnesota, I think, is like the most uh, prominent example of that. And it's the one case that the NRA was completely silent on. Um, But it's basically, uh, even if they own firearms, they're less likely to bring them uh, to the street because they're at much higher risk of dying as a result. So, uh, even though the, a lot of African American men buy into this idea of guns as a sign of good citizenship and this sort of macho, um, ideology of I am showing my manhood and I am being a good, a citizen in this way, they're less likely to own firearms, and definitely less likely to own the types of firearms that whites own because there is an uh, an income gap. Um, these bigger firearms, higher power, high power firearms are not cheap, and mm-hmm. the average African American doesn't have the kind of money that um, the white suburban middle class guy has to spend on a hobby of collecting multiple uh, AR-15s. Um, so well, there we is are a financial difference too.
0: We are out of time. Such an interesting topic. Thank you so much, Professor, for sharing your brilliance with us. Uh, congratulations on your new book, Race Rights and Rifles, the Origins of the NRA and America's Gun Culture. As you said, we have an election coming up and gun rights and gun control rights are always on the ballot. I highly recommend that everyone pick up a copy of this book leading into next year's presidential election in particular. Again, thank you for spending time with me this evening.